The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun shine on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Margie. Hey, good morning. It's good to see many of you in person, and uh, thank you for joining us. For those that are joining us online, my name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here at Park Church. Uh, Really thankful again for the ways you continue to engage, whether here in the building or at home. Uh, We're really grateful for what God's doing in this church family, even in a season that is uh, tumultuous, to say the least. And so thank you again for your graciousness, your engagement. Uh, Speaking of graciousness, uh, going to need graciousness today. We are going to uh, dive into some sticky stuff. Uh, one, partly because I'm masochistic and, uh, and feel the kind of uh, need to push in on some areas here as a church family, uh, but also we think God wants to do some significant work in us. And so what we're doing this morning is we're taking the same passage we looked at last week that felt like, hey, that was what we talked about last week. It is. Uh, you remember correctly, but we are applying it more specifically to the political season in which we find ourselves. Uh, We feel like this passage and what God's calling us to with respect to a love for other people, including our enemies, which we talked about last week, includes those who are outside of our camp and maybe even opposed to us or our way of life in the way we think of it. Uh, We're supposed to show love and we feel like it's an important time that God cares about this season for us. He cares about this political season and the way his people live and engage in the midst of it. And so we wanna speak to it So I'm going to take a moment and pray, and we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to do powerful things among us today, Um, because we need God to do powerful things, to be the kind of people he's called us to be in the midst of a season like this. We desperately need God's help, and so let's pray together. Um, Jesus, we confess our need for you. We desperately need you. We need to be reminded that you reign supremely, that you are on your throne, reigning with goodness. We just sang that you are the king of our hearts and that you reign with goodness. Would you help us to believe it? Uh, You've told us that you're with us as we learn what it means to follow you in the midst of the experiences of this life. Would you help us to believe that you are with us right now? You promise that you love us and that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so help us to believe in your love for us. But also help us learn to demonstrate that kind of love for others. For the sake of your glory, your renown, your fame, and for the joy of the world, would you help us? In Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, We are obviously in one of the most politically divided seasons of 
modern American history. You can look at research. Uh, there's so much research right now on the gap between progressive and conservative kind of uh, constituents in America. You can follow headlines uh, on any kind of news outlet which are increasingly polarized. And so if you're following conservative headlines, the greatest fear and threat to the American way of life is Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. If you're following progressive headlines, the greatest fear and threat to American life is four more years of Trump and Pence. If you follow kind of any of these headlines are going to continue to kind of feed this kind of polarizing experience. If you engage in social media, it is curated to exacerbate that by continuing to spiral you into your kind of preconception or kind of tendency towards confirmation bias in the first place, plus curating that information to be things that resonate with you. And we feel this divide growing more and more and more. But again, it's not just a division that's out there. It's a division that's within Christianity, within the church. Um, a lot of people have grown up in the sort of same stream of Christianity for a long time. And so it might surprise you to know that in a city like Denver, you could go to certain churches and you will find nearly every person in that church feeling like if you don't vote conservatively in the upcoming election, how could you possibly be a Christian? How could you possibly be a Christian and vote for a Democratic candidate? And you can go to other churches where nearly everybody in the congregation will vote progressive, will vote for the Democratic candidates, and will say, how could you possibly be a Christian and vote for a Republican candidate? And if you come to a church like Park, which is pulling people from different generations, people from different cultural backgrounds, people from the Midwest and people from California, from Texas and from New York City and Nebraska and all these different places that is pulling people from the urban core, but also people that are in the suburbs. We, it might surprise you to know, are very politically diverse in our church family. You have brothers and sisters in your church family that tend to align with one party platform candidate more than the other and people that will align with the other party plat platform and candidates more than the opposite of you. And that that's the sort of situation in which we find ourselves. And so the question we're asking is what does it mean to love your neighbor and to love your enemy in a time like this? And it's crucial that we learn this. It's crucial and God actually speaks to it. So let's, let's start here. Our mission as a church is that we exist to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. That's why we're here. Uh, that's the mission Jesus gave us. He called us as his followers in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 28, to make disciples of Jesus. He called us to make disciples of all nations. And a disciple is somebody who's been reconciled to the God of grace. They've been reconciled to God, their maker, their father in heaven, by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone. And we're supposed to help people learn this good news about what Jesus has done to reconcile humanity to the God who made them, the God who loves them, the God whom they need for the very life and breath and everything, the God that they're made to walk with and enjoy and reflect as image bearers. We're supposed to help people learn what it means to be reconciled to that God which is celebrated and commemorated through this, this sacrament of baptism. So he says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe or to obey or to align their lives with everything that I've commanded. 
That part of making disciples is not just telling people the good news about who Jesus is and what he's done, but it's teaching one another to observe or align the very fabric of our lives, the totality of our lives with the teaching and example and leadership and wisdom of King Jesus, the true human, fully man, fully God. And so what we're supposed to do as a people is to help one another obey all that he commanded. It's a part of what it means to be a Christian. So what did he command? Lots of things, actually. And one of them is the passage that was read today. He says, you've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I'm, what I'm telling you, what I'm commending you, my wisdom for life, my instructions for your life, which you are called to align your life with, is to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you, which we looked at last week. So this call to love we talked about last week is both an attitude of being for people who are your enemies and acting accordingly, actually acting sacrificially for the good of other people. And your enemies, we talked about, are those who may, you might not refer to as an enemy, but those who are outside of your camp and may be opposed to you in various ways or opposed to your way of life or opposed to the way of life that you long for. And the call of Jesus, the command of Jesus, which the mission that he gave us is to align our lives with it, is to love those people, to love them. And so specifically, we're asking today, what does it mean to love people, even your enemies, through political engagement? Through political engagement, because actually God's word has a lot to say about these things. So some people will say, you know, hey, as a church, stay out of politics. And I'll just say there's, there is no such thing as staying out of politics. Politics is the, the air we breathe. It's the way we relate to each other in a given space and time and the way that our agency, however much we have of it, is used to create structures and systems and environments and values that affect human life in various ways. And so the way we engage actually affects others. And so what we're looking at today is how could we love our neighbors even our enemies, through our political engagement. And so what I want to do is actually want to back up and give you a little bit of background to this passage in Matthew chapter 5 and then show how it applies to this moment. Look at four different things that are important for us as we learn right now in this very tense, very divided, very polarized, wild season that we learn how to love people. How to love people. And if we did, it would be beautiful. I mean, it would be beautiful. Uh, we would truly be who we're called to be, a light to the world, a city on a hill. And so in sort of background of this passage in Matthew, again, there's this, there's this teaching, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies, and that's what people are kind of thinking. And Jesus is like, no, I want you to love your enemy. I want you to love your enemy. And, I, and you're kind of like looking like, are there places in God's word where, where people have been taught to love their enemies? And there are a number of them. But one of the most profound areas where there's this concept of loving your enemy and what it means to actually love and seek the well-being of your enemy is in Jeremiah chapter 29. You can turn there if you want. Um, Jeremiah chapter 9 is a passage from the prophet Jeremiah speaking on behalf of the Lord that's actually giving a letter to or sending notice to his people, the people of God, in the midst of a time of exile. So the people of God who had made their home and had this kind of semi-thriving, imperfect uh, experience of flourishing life in Israel, in Jerusalem, had eventually turned away from the reign of God, turned away from his wisdom, and as a judgment upon their rebellion, God allowed the Babylonian Empire, the Babylonians, 
through Nebuchadnezzar to come and decimate Israel. Totally decimated Israel. The temple was destroyed, the homes and the society was destroyed, people were raped and killed, the leaders were taken captive, young people were taken captive, and they took a large population from Israel, and they marched them from Jerusalem, their home, and they marched them across the east towards Babylon. And in Babylon, the people of God began to live their life as exiles. And the New Testament will look back on the experience of the people of God in exile as a framework for understanding our experience in this life. That we are, according to 1 Peter in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, living our lives as sojourners and exiles. We are living our lives engaged in the cities and the civilizations around us, wherever God has called us, wherever he has appointed us to be. Not as those who find our most fundamental identity in the nation in which we find ourselves, our most fundamental citizenship in the nation where we live and engage, but we find our most fundamental citizenship in the kingdom of God, and we learn how to engage in the civilization around us as exiles. And so in Jeremiah chapter 29, the prophet is actually telling the people what it looks like to live as exiles, and it is a beautiful passage that frames up a lot of the New Testament's conception and the history of the church's conception of what it means to engage in life, including political life and governance in the midst of wherever God has called you to be. This is what it says in Jeremiah 29. I'm going to kind of work back to verse 4. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. But, listen to this, verse seven. Seek the welfare, Hebrew word there is shalom, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its shalom you will find your shalom and its well-being and its welfare and the common good of the city you will find goodness for yourself. The teaching is that God's called people into this place and they're supposed to sit idly and kind of wait for some future day when everything is restored and they're back in Jerusalem. No. They're not supposed to sit idly. Are they supposed to kind of have some culture war where they try to take over Babylon and build the kingdom of God in Babylon and say, we're going to overtake this wicked country and and kind of bring our values into it to change everything and make all the Babylonians become like us and live life the way we do through laws and government? No. They're supposed to live as exiles. This is not your permanent residence. This is not your identity as Babylonians. This is not the the nature of the kingdom. However, you are called to engage and to love and to serve and to seek the well-being of the place where I've called you and to pray for it. And that sounds a whole lot, lot like what Jesus says in Matthew 5. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you or who have been against you. This is exactly what Jesus is calling people to, and it's a framework, a framework for understanding the way we engage right now. And so the first thing I want us to think about, what it means, what does it mean to love our nation, to love our city, and to love our neighbors through political engagement is first to realize that you are in exile in Babylon. 
You're in exile in Babylon. That the United States of America is not the kingdom of God. It's not God's special country. It's not that it never has been. It never was. Nations can't be Christian. People can be Christian. And people can, in various forms and to various degrees, kind of fill up a nation and embody certain Christian values in various forms and in various ways. But a nation never becomes Christian, there is one kingdom of God and it transcends all the nations of the earth. It always has and it will forever and ever. And the nation that God is building, the kingdom that God is building is from people from every earthly nation, tribe, tongue, culture, background. And he's calling people from the United States to be a part of his kingdom. He's calling people from Mexico to be a part of his kingdom, calling people from different countries in Africa and in Asia and in Europe and around the world, calling people and building a multi-ethnic, multinational kingdom that transcends all the kingdoms of the world. And your hope and our hope is to be found in that kingdom, not in the future of America. God has been building a kingdom like this for a couple of thousand years with a story even before the coming of Christ. And when people overly conflate their identity with the sort of national environment and the national culture, it has always led to brokenness and pain from the time of Emperor Constantine on and on through the inquisitions and the conquests And you kind of see over and over throughout history when people overly conflate their national identity with their kingdom identity, it leads to a ton of brokenness and difficulty. And the same is true now. Inasmuch as you're hoping in the future of America as your source of hope, your source of joy, your source of where life, true, vibrant, flourishing life will come from, then you will live your life with fear, angst, anxiety, opposition in the midst of a kingdom that will keep on shaking until it is like all the previous kingdoms and empires and nations of the world kind of dissolved and shattered, which they do and they will. And meanwhile, God is still building his kingdom. It's the first thing you have to realize if you really want to love people is to detach your hope from the American hope and put your hope in Christ and his kingdom. And then you can have a non-anxious presence to love people no matter who they vote for no matter what they tend to value, no matter what future of America they are longing for and seeking to build because your hope is not in a particular future of America but in Christ and in his kingdom. And when you finally can detach from that, the anxiety and the fear that leads to anger and animosity reside or kind of can can, can drift and reduce and you can actually love people because you're not putting all of your hope and you don't see these people as a threat to your hope because Christ is your hope. And nobody can threaten the kingdom that Jesus is building. Nobody. No candidate, no platform, no election, nobody. So the first thing is to detach our hope and to realize that we are exiles in Babylon. And there's different ways to approach that, right? You can think of it syncretistically, which is ways where you conflate your identity with the American identity and you think, again, like your whole life is bent up in the American future. You can also approach it as a kind of in a a very different way as a sort of Christian ghetto, as a separatist and try to create a little Christian community where you can stay nice and neat and tidy and you can kind of like, kind of huddle up with your group of Christians and be in a space where like you're around everybody who values the same thing. You stay away from those worldly people out there because they might pollute you and might distort your life and might like kind of stain you or something like that, which people throughout history, both in this time of exile in Babylon and in American Christian history have done the same, create these little Christian separatist ghettos. And it's not what we're called to. We're actually called to engage, to seek the shalom, to actually love our neighbor. And so that's the second thing, that we can love our neighbors by engaging in the political system. 
We actually can love our neighbors. We can seek the common good. We can seek the shalom, the well-being of our city by engaging in the political system, by engaging in politics. And politics is just, again, a word that's kind of describing our activity in a given area to create government and systems and structures and values uh, that affect real people. And so the question we have to ask in a, in a season like this is, what does that mean? What does that mean to, to engage in politics and to actually seek the well-being of the city? And that's where it gets really, really dicey. That's where it gets really interesting because in our church family, right, as people are learning about God's love and God's care, it's kind of opening up your heart as you're transformed by the gospel to actually care for the interests of other people. And you're supposed to. You're supposed to care for the interests of others. In fact, Jesus has actually called us to have this kind of mind. This is what Paul says in Philippians 2. Have this kind of mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he talks about seeking the interests of others and counting the interests of other people as more significant than your own. So part of loving your neighbors through political engagement is paying attention to the interests of other people. Not just your personal interests, not just the kind of policies and things that lead to your personal advantage, but paying attention to the interests of other people. And throughout all of Christian history and the teaching of Jesus and in the other teachings of the New Testament, with a particular bent towards the needs of the vulnerable, the oppressed, the marginalized, and the voiceless. Now, what does that look like? And there are all sorts of different ways to do that. The left and progressives have their way of thinking about caring for the needs of the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, the voiceless, and the right have their ways of caring about it. And, and you might find yourself aligning with different things and different ways of thinking about how God's called us to do that. And, and that's, a, that's a place where you actually have to engage in, th in thoughtful ways. But the kingdom of God transcends the partisan divide. That there are different ways to think about caring for the poor. There are different ways of, to think about caring for immigrants. There are different ways of thinking about caring for the unborn. There are different ways of thinking about caring for education or caring for health and the wellness of the society. There are different ways of thinking about the economy and the economic future of America, how, how it will affect the next generation. There are different ways of thinking about it. And the Christian kind of environment ought to be a place where we can actually transcend the partisanship and maybe you find yourself aligning with a certain party platform more than another, but there is both value and brokenness within every party platform and every candidate. And if you overly identify with one party platform or one candidate, you will find yourself overly aligning with values that actually contradict the kingdom. Here's what Tim Keller said in a recent article. Uh, it's actually, a, I don't think it's been published, but he kind of put out a piece of it. And this is what he says. He says, the Bible binds my conscience to care for the poor, but it does not tell me the best practical way to do it. Any particular strategy, high taxes and government services versus low taxes and private charity may be good and wise and may even be somewhat inferred from other things the Bible teaches, but they are not directly commanded and therefore we can't insist that all Christians as a matter of conscience follow one or the other. The Bible binds my conscience to love the immigrant, but it doesn't tell me how many legal immigrants to admit into the U.S. every year. It doesn't exactly prescribe immigration policy. The Bible tells me that abortion is a sin and a great evil, but it doesn't tell me the best way to decrease or end abortion in this country, nor which policies are most effective. The current political parties offer a potpourri of different positions on these and many, many other topics, most of which, as just noted, the Bible does not speak to directly. This means that when it comes to taking political positions, voting, determining alliances, and political involvement, the Christian has liberty of conscience. Liberty of conscience. 
Christians cannot say to other Christians, no Christian can vote for X candidate or every Christian must vote for Y candidate unless you can find a biblical command to that effect. Now, your heart jumps into like, but they don't care about, but they don't care about, but they don't, but they don't. And it's like, hold on, hold on. It's where we jump. It's where we tend to jump. I want to call us to transcend that and say, what does the Bible call us to as Christians? Like, what does he call us to care about and to lean into and to understand that there are political policies on both sides of the aisle that fight for the care of people, and there are political policies on both sides of the aisle that harm people created in God's image. So if you're going to kind of lean on the conservative side and tend to vote Republican, there are a lot of values and there are a lot of thoughtful things that Republicans have done. There are a lot of Congress people and there are presidents and there are leaders who are thinking about different things to seek the well-being of other people. But there are also, there's brokenness. There's things and values, especially when you think about kind of explicit, tangible ways to care for the marginalized, the voiceless, the oppressed, that Republican platforms have not historically been known to value. Now, that's overly simplistic. I totally get it, right? People thinking about long-term economic ramifications, I get it. But if you're going to be on the political right, you need to show in your life that as a Christian who transcends the partisanship, you value these things. You care about these things. You're going to advocate whether it's going to be inside of politics or outside of politics. You care. And to actually distinguish yourself from some of the brokenness of that area where you find yourself. If you're on the political left, and you're thinking, how could anybody not be on the political left? And you understand that the left and Democratic Party platform has not historically cared for things like the unborn and the dignity and the value and the sanctity of human life in the womb. Now, again, more complicated. A lot of Christians think, well, they just want to kill children. That's, that's not true. And there are other things that are going on that are way more complex that can actually help reduce the amount of abortions that happen in this country that people care about. But if you're going to be on the left, you need to make it really clear that you care about human life and the sanctity of human life and to engage in those things. And those are just little examples that are overly simplistic and I'll get emails about, totally get it, send them my way. Um, try to reply quickly as I can, right? But these are simplistic ways, but just learn that you're not, if you identify with one side or the other to actually take the planks out of your own eye before you start accusing the other side for not caring about humanity, not caring about people and being total idiots and having contempt in your heart for people on the opposite side of the aisle that you find yourself. That is not love. That is not love. And so learn about local issues. Learn about what's going to be up on the ballot. Learn about policies related to immigration. Learn about policies related to abortion. Learn about policies related to health care and education and poverty alleviation. Learn and engage and think and use your mind and use your heart and lean in with sacrificial love and compassion and seek the well-being of your neighbor through the ways that you engage. But don't forget that we live in Babylon. We live in Babylon. The third piece is a call to actually treat the people you disagree with as human beings who are created in the image of God. That the people on the other side of the chat space, the people on the other side of the lunch table, the people on the other side of the phone call, the people on the other side of the article are human beings created in the image of God, who are worthy of dignity, value, and respect, and to approach people with love and empathy and with humble curiosity. Love and empathy as a human being to actually try to understand 
what's going on in their life, what they feel, what they've experienced, and with humble curiosity to understand their perspective and where it's come from and where they've formed that. As a pastor, you sit in these marriage counseling situations, and you know how a marriage counseling situation is going to go when people are willing to come in and say, I want to understand. If people are coming in demanding to be understood, you've got to understand me and you've got to understand me, it's going to be a war and a contentiousness that continues to escalate. If people say, help me understand. Help me understand where you're coming from. Help me understand what, why you felt that way. Help me, help me understand what, why you interpreted it in that way. Help me understand what, what you're thinking and what's led to that way of thinking. When you think, help me understand this kind of humble curiosity. Maybe there's something I don't see. Maybe there's something I don't get. Maybe there's something that, that, I, that I haven't thought about. Maybe there's something I didn't learn. Maybe there's something in my echo chamber that I've kind of dismissed because of my tendency towards things like confirmation bias to only kind of like admit evidence and things that kind of build up and reinforce the way I already think. And to actually say, maybe there's stuff I don't know. Maybe there's areas where I might be wrong. To have a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. To approach people as thoughtful human beings and not as mindless idiots. The kind of like, how could anybody with common sense do that or do that? What a dehumanizing and degrading approach to humanity. God's calling us to something more beautiful. To love and empathy not to agree on everything. Maybe through trying to understand, you find, hey, we really disagree on what the best way is to care about and engage with healthcare. Uh, we really disagree on what we think the best way is to think about poverty alleviation. Uh, we disagree on how we can best pursue justice and bring justice and reform into the criminal justice system. We disagree on those things. Okay. So now the question is, how do you love people you disagree with? How do you love your enemy? And that's what God wants to create in us because this is the kind of God that he is. A God who in our opposition to him and our resistance to his way of life and our rejection of his reign moved towards us with compassion and love to do something beautiful. And it brings us to the last point. In the midst of this season, do not forget that Jesus is on the throne. He is on the throne and he is building a kingdom that will last forever and ever and ever, like the prophet Isaiah said, of the increase of his government and of his shalom, of his peace, there will be no end. He's building a kingdom that will outlast in every way, every kind of rise and fall of every nation throughout the rest of history. And his kingdom is a place where people are reconciled to the God of love through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that are experiencing restoration, hope, transformation, and actually called to reflect that as a kingdom within a kingdom, as a city set on a hill to show the nature of our God, of his love, of his grace, of his justice, of his kindness, of his humility, of his servant-heartedness in the midst of this political season. And when we do, then all the shakeable things that are happening around us week after week, another headline that just shakes the world, another headline that just shakes your community, another headline that shakes you up, that you can continue to put your hope in Jesus Christ who has unshakable love for you and on his unshakable kingdom. And when we do that, what a beautiful thing to be able to engage here with peace, with love, with patience, and with hope. May God allow us to be that kind of a people. Let's pray. Jesus, um, we right now confess that we need you. We need wisdom right now at how to think about engaging politically in this time. Uh, we want to love and seek the well-being of this community, of the city, of the state, and of this nation. Uh, we want to care about the people around us. And so would you give us wisdom? 
but also would you give us humility? Would you give us love? Would you give us grace towards one another? Would you free us from the fleshly kind of like proclivity towards contempt and create in us charity and kindness even while we seek the good and the well-being of those around us. In Christ's name, amen. I want to encourage you to ask three questions. Um, give you a moment to think about them now, but encourage you throughout the week maybe to, to spend a little more time on them. And the first one is this. What has been your posture towards this political season? Is it anxiety? Is it indifference? Are you overwhelmed? Are you angry and angsty? Are you obsessed? What's been your posture? And how might God be wanting to shift your posture? How many call you to shift your posture right now? Second question is this. What has been your posture or your attitude towards those you disagree with? Contempt? Confounded disbelief? anger, peacemaking? How might God call you to change your attitude to actually have love, empathy, humility? And the third question is this, where are you placing your hope in this season? Where's your hope? Is it in an outcome, a particular outcome in November? Is it in a, a certain future for this nation or for your life? What would it look like? How might it liberate you to put your hope in Christ and in his kingdom? How might it just free you? Would you think about those for a moment and then we'll come back and celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus through communion.